I've had the best 10 years of my life. I just wake up every morning with a huge smile on my face. In fact, when I go to bed, all I can think about is, oh boy, I can't wait till I get up. You're a high achiever. On paper and through the eyes of others, you've made it. Congratulations. But the truth is you feel unwanted, unworthy, and unlovable. You always have, but you hide it well. Welcome to the Trauma Hiders Podcast. I'm Karen Goldfinger Baker, and this is a podcast where high achievers like you finally reveal what keeps them up at night that no amount of money or recognition will fix. I'm also making it my business to speak with people who get you. Hell, I get you. I am you. So get your best hider's face on, sit down, and let your guard down. What's on the other side of this shit will change your life. There are so many ways people like us fuck ourselves over, but let's start with five ways. When you know them, maybe you'll finally stop doing them. Over on my website, you'll find a free download listing the five ways your fuckery is getting in the way of the next level of your success. Grab it now at karengoldfingerbaker.com. My guest is nationally acclaimed composer and author, Tina Davidson. What I love about this conversation is the emotional depth and the beauty that Tina is in lyrical dignity. Listen deeply for the music within Tina. You'll hear what the New York Times praised as her vivid ear for harmony and colors. Earlier this year, Tina's book, Let Your Heart Be Broken, Life and Music of a Classical Composer, was published by Boyle and Dalton. The book details Tina's journey as a composer, juxtaposing memories, journal entries, notes on composition, and insights into the life of an artist and a mother at work. The book, and ultimately this conversation, is about love, forgiveness, surrender, and letting go of all the stuff we hang on to that gets in the way of living our lives completely. Listen for freedom, abundance, self-trust, self-compassion, and so much more. It's all right here, right now, in the Trauma Hiders Club. Tina, I'm so glad you're here. This is such a special treat. I am delighted to be with you. Yes. Yes. So great. So to bring you sort of into the room of the Trauma Hiders Club, something I know about you is that music plays a central role in your life. What song or piece do you remember early on in your life? Like we're going way back. You're a teeny little child. Um, what song or piece or composer or whatever moment of listening do you remember where you said, oh, that that is, I hear that, I'm listening. And how old were you? So one of my earliest memories was when I was five. And I got, of course, this was in the 50s. I got one of those great big boxes. I got two of them. And it was Gilbert and Sullivan operettas. I think it was Pirates of Penzance and Mikado. Mm. And I had this little tiny blue phonograph. And just, you know, the whole art of placing the LP on that and then carefully putting, you know, the stylus down so it wouldn't hurt, you know, and that beginning sort of scritch, scratch, scritch, scratch. I just loved that mm. sort of scritch, scratch, like this introduction to this world. And I think from a very early age, I don't want to say music was my alter ego, but it was a place that I could be safe. I always mm. say that it's a little bit like doing dishes. Like when mm. you do dishes, people don't really bother you because mm -hmm. nobody wants to do dishes with you. Right. Certainly no one wants to dry. And music has that same kind of wonderful sort of isolation in a good kind of way yeah. uh, where I could sort of immerse myself. Sometimes I think of it as 
jumping into a lake and you go under and you open your eyes and everything is kind of green and brown and the sound is going. And there is a a kind of a wonderful safety about that. I love that. I love that. Wow. When you talked about just doing dishes, it occurred to me that I hadn't thought about doing dishes as a refuge, but I had just then thought about when someone says, can I help you do the dishes? And as someone who has, thank God, lots of therapy around my internal rage, but a lot of it still, right, doesn't ever leave us. We just have the resources to be with it. Like the rage part of me is like, no, you cannot, right? And I never thought about it, right? This is a refuge, And also the second part of that is, and you sure as hell cannot help me put them in my dishwasher in the way that I am going to do that, right? You're not going to upset my system. This is where I have a little bit of control. Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And also being the the oldest of five and with my sort of backstory of my birth, I needed quiet places Mm -hmm. to be. And I think in a psychological way, music, I think as a child, I was depressed and I also dissociated a lot. Mm. I don't think I didn't have any idea I was doing it. Sure. But music was a very productive dissociation, sort of like reading, Mm -hmm. you know, where you're in that world, you're safe. Nobody can really touch you. Yeah. And um, and certainly when I was practicing, nobody would, you know, like, oh, she's practicing. Leave her alone. (laughs) Right. Right. Something great is happening here. Yes. Yes. She's doing what I asked her to do. Yeah. So, you know, it never occurred to me. um, I know that when I started to to decide to be a composer, which was in college, I know that I was compulsively I had to do it. Uh It was. And I think, again, it was wanting to speak about my life, wanting to understand about my life, but not wanting to put it in English. Yeah. Not having the ability to put it in English. Uh, But I had to speak of myself and music as a composer was a very sort of coded way of speaking about yourself and you wouldn't really know. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. And we're going to circle back to that. Okay. Very thought in a minute. Or maybe it'll be a few minutes. Before we do that, I want you to tell us, so we can get a greater sense of you, to tell us about the musical score of your family in the home, let's say. Was it fast paced? Was it melodic or moving or building intrigue or like, I don't know if this is a word, dysphonic, or maybe I made that word up where it's just like cacophonic. You mean, uh, are you thinking closely of dysfunctional? <laughs> <laughs> I think I was making like, like cacophony and dysfunctional. Cacophony, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cacophonic, yeah, I like it. Yeah. Dysphonic is now a, it's a music centered dysfunctional family. We coined it today in this recording. Right. Yes. Yeah. I, I think, um, it's hard to tell because on the surface, it was very, uh, it wasn't, it had a lot of kind of crazy undercurrents. And, but my mother was a, a, a professor and a teacher and she loved to travel. She loved to take us. She loved to take us to, to museums and to music. And so I think that the life was, wasn't very orderly and quiet with the oldest of five children and that my mother wasn't around very much. And my grandmother was sort of taking care of us, but not very well. And so we sort of took care of ourselves really badly. Um, and as an older kid, I was always the one tasked with that. I was seven years older than the, mm. the next. Um, but uh, so there, I think the hard part is when I look back at it now, I know that there was so many secrets at that point mm, okay. that that it functioned as well as it did is kind of a miracle. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it was chaotic, but in a kind of, you know, like sort of bouncing around doing a lot of stuff. And when you look back at it, you see that a lot of the kids were, were not really being listened to or taken mm-hmm. care of, or um, it also wasn't the language in the the 60s yeah. to really talk to your kids or try to understand them. It right. was much more s- surface oriented. Yes. Yes. 
Yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting. My husband and I were just talking about this, um, about how like the eight just beyond World War Two, mm-hmm. like for many, you know, I don't know how many decades, but, you know, it was all about productivity and nuclear family and making it look good. And it was all very surface level. And, you know, as you get into the 70s, Uh, Or and maybe even 80s where you're starting to do therapy. Right. My mother and stepfather was considered really disloyal. Yes. You you didn't talk about family. You know, it it was wrong. It was it was wrong. And you had to be messed up to go to therapy. Right. And and yes. Yeah. 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 Today. I mean, if you don't go. Right. Honestly, my with my kids, I and my kids are late 20s, now 30, um, everybody talks about their therapist. And yeah, it's like my kitten. Yeah. Well, it's it. And it makes sense because it's really about learning new skills, how to work your life, how to be in your life. And I think at that point, it it just felt like you were like walking around naked or there was something disgusting about it, you know, talking about your private stuff. Yeah. So I would get a lot of pushback from my my mother about this. And she certainly was mortified that we might be talking about her which of course mm. we were. Right. <laughs> and and now I'm so relieved to say to my kids, oh, well, you can talk to your therapist about me. <laughs> go, go work it out. Elsewhere. Please. Come back. Come back when you're ready. Yes, right. please. Yes. In your memoir, Let Your Heart Be Broken, Life and Music from a Classical Composer, you describe feeling different, adopted. When did you find you were adopted by your birth mother? Basically, the story is, so when did I find out? I'd always known that I was adopted. I always knew that I was adopted, but it didn't come up much. My mother never treated me any differently than the other kids. But, you know, every once in a while, like I knew that on my passport, I had her her name. Uh, she had married after I was adopted. Um And although they just, they did call me Tina Davidson, that was my stepfather's name. But I always, I think I suffered a lot from it. I think I secretly suffered that, you know, things were pretty precarious. Adopted kids had to be really pretty good because you never knew what was going to happen. Even though it might be a legal arrangement, it didn't sound like as good as being a birth child. Mm. And every once in a while, I had a brother who would, who would sort of snarl at me. Why do I have to obey you? You're adopted. Mm -hmm. Maybe he said it once, maybe he said it twice. Um, So when I was 21, I was back in Sweden and um, I was taking care of a 13-year-old daughter of a family friend and I was there for two months. And since I had been born in Sweden, I thought, oh, why don't I go to the adoption agency? So I went and she sat there in this sort of dim, dark little office reading a letter and that she said was for my birth mother. And she said, your adopted mother is your birth mother. And so that's how I found out. Your um, adopted mother is your birth your mother. birth mother. Yeah, that's like double jeopardy. And I don't even know what, like what, what? You're adopted. So your mother- That your, adopted so- me. Brought me up as an adopted child is actually your birth mother. As actually your birth mother. And did you learn of why you were given up for adoption? I had never known. Um, In fact, one time when I was 10, I was washing dishes of all things. (laughs) And I was washing dishes and I turned around. I remember sort of looking around and I said, oh, you know, just very conversational. You mean... Being adopted means that I, my parents died or they didn't want me. Mm. And I looked back at her and she had such a face of horror mm. that I thought, Oh, this is mm. not good. Mm-hmm. And she answered me truthfully, which is, yes, that's what adopted means. <laughs> and I would say that that is my mother. She had a way of really deflecting. 
Hmm. Uh, she had adopted me with good reason to protect me in the 50s, to protect her as a professor. The world was very unkind to unwed mothers at that hmm. point. Very, very unkind. However, when you have a secret, which is quite different than being private about something, and a secret that it implicates someone else, it can be extremely damaging. Mm-hmm. And I think what I noticed happening with her is she became kind of beholden to the secret. She had to kind of always walk around with the secret, so she could never really be free to tell the truth. And I think my sense is that can warp you. I don't know how you can steer clear of, uh, certainly trauma warps you, but having to hold the secret and not telling her mother or her brothers and sisters, or even my stepfather, I think it became, she became more and more paranoid, more and more concerned, more and more sort of withdrawn. This is my secret. It's not, doesn't have anything to do with you. Uh, You always knew you were my daughter. Um, And I think at that point, I had to at 21, well, actually, I just put it away. And I didn't really reassess it until my daughter was born. And Mm. I think children have a great way of bringing out past things. Mm. And in the book, I describe holding her and that she was really my great opportunity. I could either deal with this or kind of hand it to her (laughs) and let her have the trauma. Mm. And it felt very much like it was a clear choice. Yes. I, I either had to dive into therapy or just pretend it wasn't there mm-hmm. and hand it off. Yeah. And I think because as an artist and I do compose music about myself, it was sort of like I almost didn't have a choice with my music either because I knew that it would really freeze up my music if I wasn't going to make that step. Mm. Uh, So I can't say that I was excited about doing it or, I mean, I really struggled for quite a few years. And I think what I also uncovered, which I never would have guessed, is that the family that I was with as a foster child, I was with them for three years. That was my family. Mm -hmm. And when I left, it was as if a car bomb had gone off. I bet, yeah. And they all disappeared. And not only that, I was a little Swedish girl. I, you know, suddenly I didn't have a country and, and a language. Where and did you go? I, oh, my mother brought me to America. So oh, I was, okay. yeah, she, I was born in Sweden. I lived there for three and a half years and she adopted. She actually came back for me when I was three and a half. Okay. Brought you to America. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yes, you were a little Swedish girl now in America, different language. And and I had this beautiful mother, but it was, and who adored me. But I always felt like, geez, you know, I was taken away from my family to come with her. Maybe there will be a knock on the door and this mm-hmm. will happen again. Maybe I better be a really good girl. Mm-hmm. Um, so it took me a lot of time uh, to get over my rage, yeah. my anger, my loss of Solveig and my Swedish family. I just remember the first two years of therapy, just crying all the time. Sure. Uh, But I think that's what one of the reasons I wrote the book, Let Your Heart Be Broken, that in that moment, we all have broken hearts. Mm -hmm. It's, It's just part of being alive. But to meet that brokenness, to understand it is part of our lives, and to sort of visualize that the two halves of your heart break open and inside there is this beautiful rich soil yeah that that you can grow anew never the same you may never be that that free-spirited person yeah uh, but you can grow into something that is wonderful really beautiful the willingness to allow yourself to be devastated by heartbreak. When I think about that, whether it's love or loss or both, right? I have that willingness in retrospect. I didn't know I I signed up for it, (laughs) right? But 
when I got pregnant and when I saw my first child and then saw the next child, right? Like I knew I had signed up for heartbreak. Yes. And that, that more beautiful, that more vibrant, that more alive beating heart. Absolutely. We don't all have to discover family secrets to expose that heart. I'm curious. Well, like when I think about writing and you had, you'd also, you'd also brought this up when I think about writing um, and I'm working on writing now, I've been working on my writing for almost a year now. I think about writing as like a, a cathartic way to almost make sense of what can't be made sense of in a way that is safe without judgment and whatever shows up, shows up. Is composing the same? Absolutely. On on every level, whether you're doing it as a journal, you know, just, you know, because I, I write in journals all every every day and, you know, and I use a lot of my journals as, as the basis of of. Uh, my book, mm. Let Your Heart Be Broken. Um, and I would say 90% of it is not worth reading mm-hmm. uh, in, in a sort of general sense. It's a lot of complaining, a lot of weather. <laughs> but whether you're doing that sort of on an everyday basis or you're writing a short story or a book or you're writing a musical composition or you're sitting down and just improvising, I think it's all part of trying to put yourself together in a certain way yeah, and trying to understand better. I'm always uh, amazed that a lot of times when I'm composing a piece, um, I generally hold some idea or thought in my head as I'm composing. So in this book, I talk a lot about my compositions, but at one point I was towards the end of the book, when I was sort of in recovery, as it were, I was thinking of, of of a connection with a larger person. Now, now that I had sort of really worked on my connection with myself, what is outside of me? What what is bigger? Where where do I can I throw my energy up into the sky? Mm. And so I wrote a lot of pieces about that. One of them is called "It Is My Heart Singing." Another one is called um, "Delight of Angels." Because angels tend to just rejoice with their bodies. They dance, according to Jewish tradition and and old Christian. Um, And um, those kinds of things allow me to really think about that connection in a deeper way as I'm composing the music. So it sort of becomes all the same thing. Mm. And a lot of times I'm surprised that I think I'm controlling the music or I'm teaching the music about myself or telling the music. And then my music kind of throws something back at me and teaches me maybe a direction where I should go or something that I could probe deeper. And um, and I find that reciprocal relationship very interesting. Right. Yeah. I Yes. I find that all the time. I think, okay, I wake up in the morning and I think, what, what am I going to write about? And I think, oh, whatever that is, like actually today, the word was strength. Mm -hmm. And as it relates to grief, like you have to be strong or, uh, you know, people saying you have to be strong or you are so strong and um, little raging in towering inferno in me could kill somebody for that. <laughs> um, but First of all, uh, they're telling you <laughs> what you, yeah. Yes. Yeah. All the things that I need to be right. And um, mm-hmm. I'm already those things, people, by the way. So mm-hmm. what, what I, oh, if this happens only 100% of the time, the thing that is on my mind I then write about somewhere in my day, I have the experience of putting that thing into practice somehow, whether I'm driving and I hear something on the radio or I'm at the grocery store and 
something is going into a bag and someone turns to me and says something, or I have to be patient or whatever the thing, it comes to me. It's incredible how the universe allows us to go deeper into our practice. Well, and I think it's really important for me always to remember that it isn't ever over. Mm -hmm. And right now I have uh, some fracture between friends and Mm. I'm feeling kind of heartbroken about it. Mm. And I think, wait a minute, I did this. I did this a hundred times. Why am I doing it now? Well, you know, it changes clothing and gets back in line. Yes. Yes. And I think it's so important to remember that it really isn't over and that it's just about, okay, you're up again. I see you. I've seen you before. Yeah. At least I have a little bit of practice with uh, this and it's going to be hard, but I also have a lot of good tools. Yeah. I love that. The, The acknowledgement piece no matter what it is, right? No matter what it is that comes up for us, whether it's, I've been in the situation before, I have practiced this, or a sensation, an emotion, a feeling, a fear, uh, whatever, I see you. The more we mm-hmm. try to make those things go away because we don't want to deal, or right. we've been told that we shouldn't have those. Those are bad emotions, bad feelings. The more we try to make those go away, the more they will bite us in the ass, people. <laughs> well, and also, you know, if somebody says, oh, you're so strong, it's sort of uh, like, well, does that mean that what I'm doing is nothing? Yeah. You know, is that uh, I, I know that's not what they mean, you know. Yeah, right. But they're, they're, I think they're And of course, we always have to remember when people are talking to us, they're probably talking about themselves, which is hard to remind, hard for me to remember. You know, if only we all had a little badge on that said, remember, whatever I say or do is a reflection of me right, and has nothing to do with you. Oh, my gosh, we would have so much more peace in the world. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. <laughs> this this sign could sort of illuminate yeah. when it was true. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, that would be even better if it would just start to flash when it was true. But it's always true. So it yes. would always be flashing. Yes. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yes. Oh my gosh. So I'll tell you what I do want to talk about is forgiveness, because I think that's a big one. Well, and also what it came to me is how to invite joy into your life. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I think that's actually where, to me, the attachment to trauma is. Mm. Uh, For me, I had to choose if I was going to continue being attached to this trauma because I kind of felt, okay, let me give you an example. So I used to smoke when I was, you know, in college and I was a really avid smoker. Mm. And I think part of my attachment to it was, that it made me feel like I was really artistic, mm-hmm. you know, that I was, you know, flirting with suicide, you know, because mm-hmm. everybody knows that you die of lung cancer. And that, you know, I was somehow I was like really getting into this picture of myself as this dark kind yeah. of person uh, that I was ennobled by my suffering. Mm. It made me somehow a better person. And there was a point in my life where I had to really wonder, am I also a little addicted to this, this perception of myself? And what would happen if I gave it up? Yeah. Like if I changed my wardrobe, it had been all blacks, but I was going to introduce colors. Well, like, would my mojo go away? Would my, uh, you know, it really felt that I felt like to continue to heal and to be better and to find something more in my life than what I already knew, I had to leap off the cliff in this way. I had to risk it. And particularly as an artist where you classically think you have this romantic vision of the artist on the couch kind of suffering and getting over to the table to write something with blood-stained hands. And um, to ditch that concept, to move past it, was very frightening. Mm -hmm. But I also knew I didn't have a chance 
to find the good stuff in my life mm-hmm. if I didn't give it up. Sort of like the cigarettes. Right. I was never going to have a healthy life until I gave up the cigarettes. And in a funny way, you could say that the way I gave up cigarettes was a little bit the way I did forgiveness. I woke up every morning and I made myself say something I didn't believe, which was, ooh, this is taste terrible. I hate the taste of cigarettes. Ooh, I smell disgusting. Mm. I kind of brainwashed myself. Yeah. And when I was ready to let go, it was so much easier. Mm-hmm. And I think that forgiveness had that same quality for me. Um, and it's in my book, and I will tell the story again, and it's kind of a funny story. I decided that I was going to forgive my mother and my stepfather every day while I walked the dog, and I didn't have to mean it. I was going to say it, didn't have to mean it. Just to set the stage, were you forgiving them in your heart or were you forgiving them to their faces? I was just forgiving them by myself. Yeah. I decided that would be speaking. the first step. Yeah. So yeah. so every day I committed for a year as I walked the dog in the morning and she was a very muscular uh, American Bull Terrier, dragged me all around, stopped for nothing. So I was always exhausted and really irritated at her, <laughs> never failed, that I would just say, I forgive you, and I wouldn't have to mean it. Okay, so I would start with myself, I forgive you. I actually kind of meant that, and I forgive my daughter, and I forgive my friends, and I forgive my family members, I forgive my coworkers. And 20 minutes into the walk, I got to my mother and my stepfather. And I would be spitting it out. I would be raging. I forgive you, expletive, expletive. I can't believe you did that. And every day there would be a new thing that popped into my mind that I remembered. And I always say that I single-handedly terrorized everybody around the 49th and Pine. I mean, I just like this crazy woman coming. And I just kept it up for, in my best recollection, for a year. Mm-hmm. And what I noticed is that I could actually be with my stepfather without feeling like I couldn't breathe. Mm-hmm. I could be with my parents when they gave me a Christmas present. I could actually say thank you. And I could have tea for them. And when they got older and really infirm, I was able to help my sister and my brother take care of them. And it it felt pure. It didn't feel forced. I felt I could be kind to them. I was brought to kindness. Mm. And my experience with with forgiveness is just that it's, my mother would have never, she would have never have known what to do if I said, hey, mom, I've been working on forgiving you. She would have said, what for? But it changed me. I was really able to start letting a lot of that anger go. And I think, um, It might have been just as simple saying it every day, Mm -hmm. sort of like giving up cigarettes. Oh, I hate the taste because I didn't hate the taste, (laughs) you know, but I think sometimes when you want something, sometimes you have to like, what do they say? Pretend. Yeah. You just pretend to do it until you do it. Yeah. And um, the gift was to me. It wasn't for anybody else. It was just for me. And I think during this process of sort of shedding some of these old, angry, clearly I was justified in being angry. (laughs) No question I was justified, but it was no way to live. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't get to any of the good stuff. And I think, you know, that's after, you know, when I got into my 40s, after 10 years of really struggling with this in my 30s, I started to really connect spiritually with things outside of myself. And I started writing music about things. I I put it as a goal. I don't know anything about spirituality, but I'm going to reach out and see what's out there. And even when uh, 10 years ago, when I left my second marriage, which was quite difficult, I don't know. I've had the best 10 years of my life 
I just wake up every morning with a huge smile on my face. In fact, when I go to bed, all I can think about is, oh boy, I can't wait till I get up. Oh, so nice. So So I think the gift is, um, you know, of letting your heart be broken Mm -hmm. is this wonderful abundance that's really there. I think as you grow up with bad things happening to you, there is a sense of real scarcity. And unless you are willing, unless I am willing to really reach out for it, the abundance, it's not really going to be there. I mean, it is there, but I can't figure out where it is. And I do, I do believe in kind of a leap of faith Mm -hmm. that you sometimes just have to leap at it and just trust that it's there. In fact, my book at at one point was going to be called Grief's Grace, Mm. that there is a grace to grieving. There is something that you get. It's not a a fruitless endeavor. No. Yeah. (laughs) You really gain so much. Um, Yes, you know, your past is always there. Yes, when you think about it or connect with it deeply, it, will, it may cause you pain or it may jump out at you at some point. But, you know, I've just had so much more of a sense that I'm the one who's driving the car. And that is um, really very exciting and yeah. and energizing, yeah. uh, you know. So, yeah, I would say these last 10 years, surprisingly, have just been sometimes hard, but Overall, just great. Just really a pleasure. So nice. Do you think that had you not forgiven yourself, you could have created or seen the abundance in your world? I don't know, because that was just the way I did it. So I don't really have an idea. How'd you know Uh, to do that? I had gone to a workshop called Essential Experience and um, had really been motivated by some things that they talked about. I I hadn't really bought into it. I, you know, like, you know, forgiveness. Oh, my God, really? Um, but then I had read uh, Women Who Run With the Wolves. Mm-hmm. And she has such a beautiful passage about forgiveness in there and the steps about forgoing, uh, forgiving. But at the end, you are free to go. That's right. And it just was like, oh, there's a door over there. Yeah. I am going to get to that door. I don't care how many dirty streets I have to walk following this dog's butthole. I am willing to go for that open door. Because worst case scenario, I can refuse to go through. <laughs> that's right. But you have the choice. But I have the choice. Yeah. That I think that with trauma, that is to me always the key is being yeah. able to have choice. As a child, you did not have choice. No. But as we create ourselves again, as we research and delve into the hard parts of our lives, it is an act of creation. Absolutely. Uh, of of creation for something be- something that, that feels better to us. Yeah. Yeah. And at times it feels like reparenting. And at times it feels like creating a different narrative for childhood. And at times it feels like another dimension. And at times it feels like surrender. And at times it feels like being a warrior. So it's right. like all of those things. Yes. Yeah. You know, I bring up forgiveness a lot. Um I bring up forgiveness a lot with my clients and I go to quote things and I don't know, maybe this is my aging brain. Maybe this is my trauma brain. I can never remember the quotes about forgiveness, but there is something about forgiving somebody is some sort of holy act. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't believe it and I don't buy it and it's not necessary and I want to fucking scream. So it's if someone is listening to this show for the first time, because if not, you may have heard this before, that forgiving those, forgiving an abuser is not necessary. It is not important. Forgiving your self, who you were, what happened to you, the judgment you have around what happened, 
I think that is the ultimate act of freedom. I don't have to forgive my father's father for being a disgusting human. Mm. I don't have to. He has nothing to do with me today. I can't forgive me, forgive him. He's dead. Also, um, he doesn't hold any power or any space other than the energy I have around him being a disgusting human. And that is, I suppose that is some power. Um, but yeah, I don't, I'm not called to forgive him. I don't think it's necessary in my quote unquote healing or growth or progression or anything else. But, and I think it's very important to separate forgiveness and forgetting. So you might forgive somebody, but you're certainly not going to send one of your children over there to be put, put them in harm's way, right? You have not forgotten you are going to it it is it is always an act of self-protection yeah you know you are so that forgiveness has nothing to do with sort of like having to be with them or tolerate them yeah i mean with my parents you know i kind of wanted to be at least tolerant what is with mine yeah yeah i right my parents were not my abusers my parents were people who acknowledged in a way that sort of (laughs) created other traumas (laughs) in my world. But, you know, the story that I tell about my parents is they did the best they could. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not the same story I tell about my father's father, that he made a choice. Right. He made a messed up choice. I don't have, yeah, I don't have to forgive. Right. So I write in my book, forgiveness is a softening. The rigid rage of my hurt, the little girl stuck between my mother and a man who scarcely knew how to love began to give away. The anguish of being unnamed and uncalled softened and started to slide off me. Like the earth after a long winter freeze, I became moist and quiet. The shift was small, the breeze slight, a faint trace of warmth in the air long awaited. So, and forgiveness does not restore love, nor did it create the kind of love I had wished for. Right. Had we together I, the sweet affection of a lifelong bond, but it brought me to kindness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think also, um, I think there is sometimes a fantasy that if you forgive, everything will be better. Right. You know, the slate will have been wiped clean. And, uh, that's not been a reality for me, but at least I felt less frozen. I felt less enraged. I, for a long time, I felt like the rage controlled me mm-hmm. and that I was willing to do whatever it took. Yeah. So that I wasn't under that, oh, like, like kind of like somebody, I was a puppet mm-hmm. and I was, you know, a, you know, forced to do these things that intellectually I didn't want to, but emotionally I was doing. Right. Yeah. So I don't know much about it. I know my experience. It's never done. You know, something will come (laughs) up, you know, and I also write in this, in the beginning of it. Oh boy. I do love women who runs with wolves. She just was so such an amazing writer. But I think that I quote Jesus because Peter asked Jesus, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? Mm -hmm. Jesus answered, smiling, I'm sure. I'm sure he smiled. (laughs) And he said, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Mm. But, you know, to me, Jesus is always smiling when he says right. these things because he just he goes, oh, honey, you're you're such you're such a human being. <laughs> you, you thought this would be an easy fix seven times, oh, seven times. Isn't that enough? Yeah. yeah Darn. On. Human yeah. being with humans doing human things. Right. So he's, you know, he's always smiling and mindset. He's like, oh, sweetie, like you do with a kid. You go, oh, honey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bless your heart. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, I did say that I don't want to talk about attachment to trauma, um, but I do for a minute. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
It's a fascinating thing to be doing the work of digging in, regardless whether, you know, whether it's like a, a deep capital T trauma or something in your life that you're working on processing or sorting out and you really want to get to the bottom of it and you really want to be over it mm-hmm. in a way. And it becomes the focus of your life. And you forget that there's that the world keeps going, right? Yes. And you forget about that. And it's like, wait, hold on a minute, world. You can't invite me to a happy hour <laughs> or you can't invite me to a movie or I can't go out for lunch with you or to see an author because I'm working on my stuff over here. <laughs> I that's I have a job to do. I'm not getting paid for it. I have a, I have a full-time job and that is to do the work of me. And what we often do is we forget that we do get to those of us who are lucky enough to dig in, get to do the work and get to live our lives integrated among other humans mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. love us and support us mm-hmm. and are there through all the stages of our transformation. Right. Yeah. Right. And I think what is particularly tricky is that let's say you have as what people might think is a minor trauma, like your pet dies. Mm-hmm. And that just seems to be really possessing you. I think there are times when traumas, upsets at the top level of the earth have also repercussions because they're, they're triggering something below. Sure. And it is, it is an opportunity to realize that the pet who died is really symbolizing you know, being afraid of being left alone, uh, the loss of other things, ne- maybe not being heard as a child. Mm-hmm. So I think sometimes, I mean, I think I have to be very careful when I say a- an attachment to trauma, because it's all different shades. Sure. And um, my experience at this moment, I don't want to be diminishing somebody else's experience when I don't right. understand. So I may say, oh, but it's just your dog. Right. But it has gone right to the core of that person. Yes. I'm talking also at some point when you've, when I have done so much work on something. Uh, I, I think, I don't think I shared this, this quote from Stephen Levine, who said, illness is a great teacher, but like all teachers, you have to let them go. Yes. I love that. And it's terrifying. Mm hmm. Yeah, because that illness may have given you a very profound connection to life and, uh, um, you know, much more profound and deep connection. And, you know, as has happened to me, after a, a very long illness, I got a sort of magic reprieve that I didn't expect. And it was shocking how hard it was to let go of that illness. Mm. It had made choices for me. It had kept me safe. And suddenly, you know, I had to make choices for myself. It was mm-hmm. like I was just like coming out of adolescence again. Right. Isn't that? Yeah. So I think when I say attachment to trauma, I, I really want to be very, very careful how I say that and right. and say it with, you know, I think at some point, one might say, hmm, I wonder what my relationship is with this trauma and if it's healthy. Mm -hmm. If I'm getting healthy, but my relationship to the trauma is maybe maybe I'm relying on it too much. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe I can open up to joy. Mm. Maybe... Oh, well, no, no, because if I open up to joy, you know it's going to go bad. Right, right. <laughs> I'm just so, going to bring my dark self and all my stuff yeah, in. My and boohoo with me. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah, and my yeah. dirty Kleenex. Exactly. So it does take courage to say, okay, I'm going to see what it's like to go outside without all this heavy clothing. Yeah. And all my protection and all my padding. 
And okay, so I just made it out to the front yard. I had to go home again. Right. That's okay. You know, then we're going to go a little further. And of course, you know, I just have to laugh because after the period of of that I'm writing in the book, I remarried, you know, just he was uh, just an amazing artistic man with three little kids. And but over that 12 years, I realized that was not getting what I needed. And I had to save myself. And even though I had thought I had figured my life out here, I had walked straight into another difficult situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's the other part for me is, man, life requires such a huge dose of humility. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, my goodness, here I've done it again. Yeah. And awareness, right? Yes. There's humility and awareness, knowing that what we've chosen, sometimes we choose in a way that like our logic is like, oh, this this is so different, right? Like he has three young kids. There's so you, much joy and light. And meanwhile, and they were, and they, they were, were to- and they were, yeah, you they know, were they all were, of that, but all of that. My guess is the level of chaos that you felt internally was no different. Like if you really break it down, the le- level of chaos, the level of not being heard, the level of putting others first, the putting uh, others first, uh, boy. Yeah. It is, uh, you know, and I loved them. I, you know, I brought these three kids right into my heart. They are there forever. Mm -hmm. But I was also giving myself away at such an astonishing rate. Sure. We look for that. We look for that. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, I I thought you, Mm -hmm. you had done all this work. What's going on? Yeah. And again, you know, just having um, merged from that is, wow, I just have to be humble. That's just where I was. Uh, I can't tell you, you know, I I am so grateful to have these three children in my life. I mean, it's just such a joy. Would I do it again? I don't know. (laughs) I don't. I can't answer that question because I know that I lost myself. Mm-hmm. And I lost my music, mm. you know, to take care of them. I started giving up little bits of my creative life. And um, it, it's hard to acknowledge that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but there it is. There it know? is. Yeah. There it is. There it is. This is, is going to be my shout out for we can do all the heady work we want. Right. Uh, that we have access to. We can do it all. And if we don't do the work around our bodies and sensations and our central nervous system and the effects of our day to day experiences on what's happening within, we will never, we will all, well, I should, shouldn't say never. We will always choose that level of dysfunction that is our set point. And if, if you, I believe if your set point is I can take a shit ton of chaos and discomfort and fight or flight, I am always going to look for that level of chaos and fight or flight. And I'm never going to choose me. I'm just always going to be living this way. And we get in trouble. We get ourselves in trouble. So it's all of the work. It's all the stuff that we get to process and the somatic, the body work. Well, and also I think I had done a lot of work on myself, but I hadn't done a lot of work on boundaries Ah, and saying no. Yes. As a woman, you Mm -hmm. know, and also as a kind of superwoman, being a single parent, having this career, aren't I amazing? I can do anything. And I, wasn't yet comfortable in my 50s saying, I don't know how that's going to be done, Mm -hmm. how that can be fixed. I'll be interested to hear how you solve that problem. (laughs) Oh, wait, is 
are we allowed to say things like that? <laughs> <laughs> Only in our dreams. <laughs> Only in our dreams. Yeah, you know. So, so uh, yeah. you know, that was the thing I had not developed. Mm-hmm. And so now at this wonderful house that I've been here almost seven years now, I tell all my kids that I have an invisible uh, fence mm. that is buried underneath the property, and it's a drama fence. Fence. So anybody who comes with drama, they get caught outside, and they go, "Wait a minute! I want to go in, and I want to spread all my drama, and I want her to fix me, but I can't get to the front door." Yeah, and they zapped. laugh at me. They laugh yeah. at me, but I think it's you know, I think what we do for our kids is we show them how we are living our lives as a possibility for them. Mm-hmm. And I think for my kids uh, coming out of that second divorce, uh, landing on my feet after a couple of years, you know, teasing them about the drama, saying, you know, there's no drama here. You can come to me with your concerns and your that's not a problem. But people who are really drama driven, like sort of the ain't it's awful, ain't the world just the worst place, they get stuck outside because yeah. I am in a position now of creating boundaries that are loving, that are careful, and that are pro-life. Mm. <laughs> they they, you know, help uh, create more good connections rather than bad connections. Yeah. Um and I think that's certainly been my learning of the last 10 years. Uh, yeah. I love that. That's yeah. really beautiful. I loved getting to know you. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. This has been such a wonderful conversation. Yeah, it really has. Your perspective, your creativity, the way you see the world is, for me, joyful, forgiving, beautiful boundary making, and grown up. It is nice, finally. <laughs> right? <laughs> Look at us. Work, working on it still, though. There are times when I'm not as grown up as I'd like to be. I understand that. I I think by the time the show airs, I will be 60. I think mm-hmm. so. Um, and yeah, I can see you as a grown up. So I think that means something about me. And that might mean that maybe I am growing up. I think it's an amazing decade, the 60s. I have loved it, you know, and um, a sense of um, just being able to pull a lot of those threads together and uh, not feel like people are pulling threads out of my, my tapestry, but that I am truly weaving a life and I can be ballast for my children when they come and they go, ah, and you just, and of course, uh, you know, my oldest, oh, she is just razor sharp. I say, well, have you ever thought about, and she goes, are you trying to give me advice? <laughs> I'm like, oh no, I no. wouldn't think of it. No, it can't do that. <laughs> no, no, we but, don't give well, advice. Well, and you know what? She's gotten good boundaries. Way she to go. just wanted me to listen. Yep. That's all anybody say, ever wants. Yes. And I'll say, oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. I'm keeping up. Oh, wait a minute. Where's that zipper? <laughs> oh, that is some wisdom we can share if you're not yet in your 60s or 60. Here's a here's a life hint. Mm-hmm. All anybody ever wants is for you to listen. They don't want you to figure it out. They don't want you to give advice. They just want you to listen. Right. And it's truly what people want. They want sovereignty, which means I decide in my life, I control my life. And that willingness to listen and not feel like you have to do something because it's kind of made you anxious. Yes. You know, to sit with your own anxiety and let them have their say in things. Boy, it's hard work. You know, I just, you know, I struggle at it sometimes. Sometimes I'm pretty good, but there are other times when I'm, you know, I just, I have a friend who always says, get your sticky fingers off their steering wheel. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) That's great. And you can see my long fingers trying to approach their steering wheel. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's good. So tell me what has been most helpful for you being in the Trauma Hiders Club? I think, um, you know, certainly being able to share my story 
being able to articulate how it's become so uh, intertwined with my music and how that has been also part of my journey. I find it so interested to have written this book and thought so carefully about it, but then to speak about it and understand deeper levels yeah. and to be surprised. Uh, I love it when readers reach out to me and surprise me like, oh, it's like a thriller. I couldn't put it down. I'm like, going, really? Uh, um, or people say, oh, you know, I never liked music, but it's really, or I never thought I could handle classical music, but this has really given me some thoughts about that. Or to have composers or artists come to me and say, you've started me thinking about how I can articulate about my work and share it, share with it at a different level. Nice. Um, so it's been quite an extraordinary process. Yeah, yeah. And well, I'm glad you got to share. Yes, thank you yeah. so much. Absolutely. Thank you. You've been listening to the Trauma Hiders Club podcast. For more episodes, head over to my website where you'll find links to resources mentioned and all the ways you can listen on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're ready to fight, Discover the rules of Trauma Club. Head over to KarenGoldfingerBaker.com.